This is a Pivotal Conversations podcast. Guys, just before we get started, if you're loving the podcast, can you please go leave us a five-star review on Spotify and please make sure that you subscribe on whatever channel that you listen to us on. It helps us out dramatically. I think you just enjoy the journey. You know, it's you always feel like you're not good enough and it's not, you know, it's fun and it's going to be better next week or better next year when you, you know, hit this milestone, hit this milestone, but... The truth is, like, you know, looking back, they're such fun years. So just enjoy the journey. I think it's the main thing. Davey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, mate. I, uh, I mean, I've been excited. I've been, we've, we've been, you know, trying to, trying to link this up for a while now. Um, and when we locked in a date, I'm really excited because I think, um, I think, the one thing I love about these podcasts is just being able to have a really pure conversation about business. I'm very curious and and love to learn. And I think um, I I noticed that when I was doing my research, I, I think you're very much the same. You know, like you're very you're, you're very curious in the way you think about it, and you really like to solve problems. Um, and and obviously, you know, um, over the last you know, you've, you've obviously been in business for quite a while now, but you're really starting to hit your stride as well. So I'm, I'm very keen to, to talk business with you and, and try to unpack some of your philosophies and principles. I'd love to start with your startup story. So, um, you know, uh, from you know, opening a Vietnamese roll st- store in, in Adelaide to, you know, now Udi and, and Davy Group and, and, you know, generating over $200 million in revenue. Sure. Yeah, so... I've always been entrepreneurial. I think it's pretty common. Um, people, you know, I was trying to sell cookies in school. I was trying to do, you know, sell pencils in school, all of those kind of things. And then kind of in high school, I realized that Instagram was becoming a thing. I think it was 2012. And I realized social media was becoming a thing. I went into a supplement store and took some photos of some supplements, posted them online and started to gain followers, um, just educating people about that. I kind of started growing Instagrams that then really, you know, it was really early. Really nobody had any idea the power behind social media at that point. This is, and then, and then yeah, we started selling advertising to brands, you know, selling weight loss tea, all of those kind of things. That really gave me a leg up in kind of, you know, the ability to start investing in other businesses and gave me the confidence to to actually take some risk. I then obviously lost all the money as everyone kind of does. They they go through that that cycle of um, irrational exuberance, overconfidence, spent all the money, lost it all with a Vietnamese roll store. Luckily for me, you know, I kind of realized that it's not all businesses are made equal at that point. And I'm still realizing that today, you know, e-com has so many flaws and there's so many great business models out there as well. So yeah, I, I realized that food and, and, and that kind of stuff, I have a special respect for restaurants and, and got, got into e-commerce, low cost of capital, launched calming blankets after dropping out of university Calming Blankets quickly grew to be one of like Australia's fastest growing e-commerce brands. I think we did, you know, a million dollars in its first year profit. Um, so it was growing really, really quickly. And from that, you know, the two months after launching Calming Blankets, I launched Udi and now Udi's um, 
yeah, doing over you know 170 million dollars a year revenue. So carving blankets definitely isn't as big anymore. It it kind of hit product fatigue, and we didn't execute probably as well as we could have. But we've got a, a bunch of brands as well. I've got an outdoor brand in the US called OutdoorPlay.com that does about 20 million dollars revenue a year as well. It's one of the the leading outdoor um, businesses over there. So. Yeah, that, that's pretty much the Davy Group now. We're an e-commerce holding company. We don't really rely on synergies between the group. It's more so about just sharing information. We tend to try to separate the group into their own personnel. Uh, that was a big lesson for us. So realistically, it's it's just a company that shares knowledge and shares resources and uh, resources is in capital when need be. And yeah, it's going going quite well despite the turbulent times of e-commerce for most yeah i think i'm definitely uh, excited to talk about davy group and the different structures because you, you just did mention then that there was a bit of a lesson there so we can potentially dive into that too i want to come back to you mentioned that um, you were building instagrams um can you explain what you mean by by building instagrams like i know that sounds like a really simple question but i'm interested to hear about was the Instagram first and then you started to incorporate products and you yeah. also said advertising? Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a good question generally around what it means to grow a platform. And the the methods that I had to grow Instagrams back then wouldn't work in theory now. That was called a shout for shout method where I post you, you post me, and then we both get a few more followers. A lot of the algorithms that that these platforms are rolling out is to kind of destroy those growth hacks. Um, but it is important to for, for listeners to realize that there is always going to be growth hacks and there is always going to be new platforms. You know, this is the creator economy. We're looking at how these platforms are evolving and how content is being consumed both through the billion versions of Netflix but also the billions of versions of, of social media and blogs and self-owned media. So, I think it's it's really an exciting time for that in that there are growth hacks that you can currently do and it's basically a repeatable action that creates a uh, positive result and that that exists in in lots of things you know another growth hack for Instagram was engagement pods what we would do is we would get a group of people on a, on a platform like Kick or Telegram and every time we would post we'd all just like it mm-hmm. and that would force it to go viral um so there's always those things popping up and where and you've just got to find them and a lot of i think uh, all of this comes down to paying attention so looking at what these other pages are doing and just copying them um i think that that's the main thing so any person doesn't need to be part of the community because generally these communities they keep their growth hacks secret but yeah, you, you listen to the podcast of the founders, maybe they spill how they how they do it, the founders of the pages, but then just pay attention and just copy exactly what they're doing. In terms of my Instagram story, the products, you know, start the, the, there was a natural progression of in within that community, people were just saying, hey, post this, I'll give you 50 bucks, pay, post this. Um, and I massively undervalued myself. I had no idea what I was doing. I ended up selling one page for like $30,000, which was, I thought I was set for life uh, when I was <laughs> yeah, straight yeah, out of school yeah, getting yeah. that money. Yeah. Uh, I lost all of that, obviously, as I said. Um, but 
yeah, the, 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 the true power of those pages where, you know, you look at Kayla Ritzinus and Toby Pierce and building Sweat and Greta Van Real building, you know, multi-million dollar businesses off those platforms. You know, there's, there's a couple of other examples that come to mind that are probably $100 million examples as well now that were built off those pages. So the power is immense. Um, it's just about building that system, as I said. Are you seeing any correlation currently to TikTok from the early days? Yeah, TikTok's an interesting one. I think that it's going to get banned. I really do think it's going to get banned, but I don't think that that means that anyone should stop investing in the platform because that vertical format of has has proven to be extremely consumable, therefore uh, get a lot of data. So any platform that adapts it, like YouTube Shorts or Instagram Reels, is going to have a lot of data to work with and, and that will serve the algorithm. So... Yeah, it, they, they'll reward it with virality and, and growth. So I think TikTok itself is is in real trouble. Um, uh, but I, I do think investing in that platform so at least you can get YouTube shorts. There's a big thing happening that I don't think anyone's paying attention to, which is faceless YouTube channels. Now, if you look at how Instagram's initially, like in my day, how the content was getting created for that was just a repost. So I see this nice viral picture, I repost it. Instagram doesn't favor it as much from a virality standpoint because a lot of people have already seen the content, so less people engage with it. Um, But the way that kind of that is getting changed now with the faceless YouTube channels is people is repurposing publicly available information. It might be like a day in the life of Tim Cook and that, that'll get millions and millions of views because it's a simple algorithm. Uh, it's a simple calculation of click-through rate, how many people click that thumbnail, and then the view duration that people stay on that thing. So people are montaging all of this content in a really engaging and educating way and getting people to uh, go, going, going very, very viral. So I think that that's really exciting as well, and it's – not not quite the same as TikTok, but I think both of those things together is really a, a great place for people to start with their organic media. Wow, the, the faceless YouTube channel uh, or the faceless content in a sense is a really interesting one because um, I think that we, we were talking prior about, you know, corporate companies and the struggles they have creating content and, you know, potentially if you think about the evolution of that, um, you know, it might, it might be something that, you know, if it does continue that they can look into at some point, you know, yeah. with that kind of content. I think cell-phoned media is a great opportunity for any brand out there. The problem is that it's a, another thing to manage, you know, just because I have skills in creating e-commerce doesn't mean that I'd be good at a podcast. Um, maybe there's natural abilities and understanding algorithms that will kind of transcend across both areas. But you know, a lot of these kind of smaller businesses, they need to be razor focused and to hire or to for the founder to take their eyes away from, let's say, Facebook ads to go work on a podcast, short term probably isn't going to have a return investment. So therefore, you need to have extreme confidence in the long term ability for that to produce results. So yeah, it's an interesting kind of dilemma for people. They can either be at the whims of Facebook and these media sources forever or they can invest now. And I've seen this over a long, uh, I've seen a couple of brands investing now. They're buying blogs for millions of dollars. Um, and then they're building teams around managing that and taking the risk that they can figure that out as well. Because yeah, it is, it's going to get a little bit 
hairy uh, in the future, I think, with all, all of these Facebook and, and, and all of these privacy laws. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I want to come back to you mentioned something, uh, what you mentioned before around owned media, uh, and you kind of mentioned that as a, you know, in a startup, as an example, to take their eyes off the ball to, to go into something like a podcast, you have to be sure that the long-term investment is going to be worth it. And my question, I guess it's more of a follow-up to that, was I know that you're very product-orientated, like, and I also know that there's people out there that are very marketing-orientated, and they'll say, well, it's not that it's, not that it's one or the other, um, but I'd love for you to touch on, you know, that because I think that, that, like, that principle of like, okay, you know, should we be focusing on refining the product and our messaging around the product before we go into, say, just creating content for content's sake? Yeah, I think it was Naval had a good quote. Hopefully, I don't butcher it. He said, "You do sales to make up for bad marketing. You do marketing to make up for a bad product." Kind of thing. I think it all stems with product because if you think about it, product is the point of leverage that everything is getting pushed towards. Um, there's a reason why you know some brands can make a, a promote a one million dollar promotion with Kim Kardashian work uh, and you know, most brands would just burn that money by working with them. And that's because it just makes everything more successful if you have a have a good product. So always start there. I think product positioning is important, but I see that, yeah, I, I think it's it's far more important to just... So there's different stages of a product. We've got, you, you might be bringing out a product that no people aren't even solution aware so they're not even sure that there's solution aware then they might not be product aware so for example they're like oh i know that there's a wearable blanket but i don't know the exact product to to solve that for me like the and and then brand aware and i kind of butchered that a little bit but yeah i think it's about understanding product positioning is all about understanding where consumers are thinking around that product and um then kind of focusing on there because you might, the product positioning playbook might already exist for that. In terms of your question around, you know, focusing on, on media, I think as a founder, you always just need to be analyzing and even a, an employee, you always need to be analyzing where is the highest return on investment for my time at this point. For managers, it is to your highest form of leverage is your team's output. That is your sole function. It's not you shouldn't be in the ad account. You shouldn't be doing this because the, your your team should be doing that. Um, and generally, as a founder, it's it's also the, the same questions. And shiny object syndrome is really really bad. It's cost me millions of dollars, but we always want to go test and test and test and test and test things. Fine, but you need to do it in a in a formulaic way with some level of prediction around what success looks like over a period of time, and then go after that. So. You know, the the podcast example I think is a good one. I think, again, looking at the pro- podcast as what is the product behind the podcast and what it, why is someone going to listen to you? There's a million podcasts. You know, is your delivery going to be better? Is your production going to be better? Do you have access to like better amount of talent? Those are kind of the questions that you need to answer. And if you have a good product in that sense, then chances are you might get outsized returns from it and it might go viral and it might pay off big time. But these are the kind of things that you need to do before you go off and, and test. Mm. And and so uh, I definitely agree with you and I think it all comes down to resources. Like that's that's definitely and how you allocate those resources. That's really business as a whole. Like, um, But I guess like 
as a follow-up question to that again, um, and I know we're going deep on that subject, but I, I'm pretty keen to kind of hear your answer on this, is like my first question would be is like what makes a great product and then I feel like the goal is to create some sort of association with that product, you know, um, and, and I'd love to hear because I feel like that's what media does, right, in a sense. Like when you wrap and say any sort of entertainment or media around a product, you're adding a layer or, or trying to build, say, some sort of competitive advantage to, um, or I mean, create a deeper association around your product. So as an example, um, what you talk about is not necessarily going to be direct. And let's just use a podcast. It's not going to be directly about your product, but the things you talk about will be a layer of that depth. How do you think about that from a principles perspective? So um, obviously you've built, you know, um, some really successful brands over your time and you've had some really successful products. So you've got, you know, what makes that great product and then how do you think about creating that layer? Yeah, I think ambiguity is a really scary thing with things that you're investing in. And I, I, and this is coming from someone that's not a, a huge brand person. You know, I am more of a product orientator, direct performance. Um, I let the product speak and that's why Audi has been successful because it's such a great product and, and the, we kind of deliver it in a great way with amazing patterns and, um, yeah, amazing service as well. So I think your kind of brand gets served us around that. But there is so many examples of what you're talking about where it worked incredibly well, where, um, yeah, you're basically serving information that therefore builds credibility or um, builds emotional connection, which is all that brand is, which creates a rational spending behavior and a rational connection to to the product. So, yeah, I think I think there's definitely room for that, especially – as I said, if you can expect outsized returns because you've got something unique about it. So a fitness fitness uh, is a good example of one where if you've got some really, really great trainers that are working already within the, within the business and, um, you know, that's not going to cost you too much. All you need to do is produce the podcast and put it out there. I think one of the main things as well with that is with analyzing anything, any initiative is looking at the risk and when and, and time is a risk. Time and trackability is a huge risk. And I think podcasts, you, you'd know more about this than me, but like, pod, I, I do think you would be able to analyze podcast results relatively quickly uh, because you're obviously releasing on a certain cadence. And uh, when you release, there should be a spike of traffic and that you can also get them to use different discount codes. So I think that there is like a great amount of trackability for that. So I'd probably... I would be inclined to test that and launch that in the early stages and just see how it goes and then look at the trajectory. But the things that if we look at the contrary of that, like PR, like you can't even track it. It's, it's confusing. It's confusing. Um, you know, what, what's the return on investment? It's not really that scalable as well. So something where you're in control, where the time variable is less and there's trackability is, is favorable for like, you know, an early stage founder trying to create growth methods. Mm. It's interesting, like even, I, I mean, how many how many Hormozy copycat kind of, you know, there's a, like I, I, I like the, I'm, what I'm curious about is content as a whole and, and kind of how that plays into it. But I think what you're saying definitely is, is makes a lot of sense. And, and I think the, the risk side of it is the big one because you're right, it is the shiny object. Like, you know, um, oh, it works for Hormozy or, you know, that podcast worked for this person, they're doing really well with it. But um, 
you know, relative to where you are and what you're doing right now and what you need to do right now is is yeah. obviously the question. There's there's a realm where the the podcast becomes a product. Like it it's so powerful what you know, all all of these people like Stephen Bartlett, like Alex Hamosi, um Tim Ferriss, like all, these people have they could release anything. They could release absolutely anything and and they could sell huge amounts of it and their their product their podcast makes so much money so as long as you're understanding what your objectives actually are within that i i, I really do believe in the creator economy and I, I think you should be starting a podcast youtube video uh youtube channel like after being really thoughtful around what you're trying to achieve but yeah i think it's a good money maker yeah amazing so udi the udi um is a you know you've built that into such a successful brand. Uh, and I think one of the things we really love to talk about is what are, you know, one, you know, two or three things that you did in the early days that you think really helped, you know, boost its success or accelerate its success in, you know, in the early days. Yeah. The first is really looking after your reviews and just making sure that when someone writes in your product name and reviews, there is a great glowing recommendation across all platforms, Trustpilot, product review, Facebook reviews, YouTube reviews, people use that as a research tool. So if you don't have that, um, chances are your Facebook ads are going to perform less. Everything's just going to kind of fatigue. So looking at, at and it's, it's not just a vanity thing as well. Like we use reviews to understand how we're serving our customers. And if that's going badly, then we reflect operationally and try to fix that and, and do right. So I think that's a really big one that helped us kind of stand out. Um, we got, I got pretty obsessed with Facebook and the core channel that was delivering results. And I hired the absolute best people possible for that when I saw that there was getting results. I think that that's really applicable for when you find a, a an amazing product. Like you, you like know something special, you see the results, you see the data, people are talking like, you instantly become all of your agencies like top product, not because they're um, we're amazing. It's just because the product is so amazing. So I think that when you see that, you should be really doubling down and investing and realizing that you've got something big. Um, that really, really helped us. And yeah, I think I think just hiring really, really good people, you know, quite quite early on was was very helpful. I, I learned a lot from them, um, and just working a lot. Yeah, a lot. I think that that third one is obviously the the non-negotiable. I want to touch on the second one, um, and I'd love to, I guess, understand. You've obviously done this multiple times over now, which is the thing I think is quite. Uh, I mean, look, there's a lot of credibility attached to that, and you've obviously worked really, really hard on mastering the process. But I'd love to hear about the hiring process, and so uh, obviously, like you said there's you know you might have this kind of once in a blue moon product that is just you know um you know it's amazing and you know it's going to do really well or you might not and and you might have a product that is a bit more of a slow burn what is the difference in the dynamic of hiring and and who do you hire first and what's like you know how do you build that team you know we don't have to go into too much specifics but yeah i think i'll try to keep it general in case someone listening is an, an e-com founder i think the first step is really mapping out the daily responsibilities that you are doing and don't want to do um uh, or you you are not doing very well um is probably a better example uh so i think yeah starting starting with that and it, in the e-com example it's mine was operations and customer service 
So really struggling to do with the three PLs, the suppliers, and also growth hack and and run the marketing side. So, and that that's quite common. You've got more of a creative uh, marketing side, but then you've got the operational, more pragmatic side. So they're kind of two different profile splits. So you're kind of trying to find the opposite to you. And very early on, hire generalists. Like it's really important to hire generalists because, and also easygoing people that aren't going to absolutely annoy you when things don't go right because trust me they're not going to go right and you want the person to have a growth mentality and just kind of dive in get things done you want to work well with them you want to make it enjoyable all of this stuff is just about enjoying it in the early stages that's kind of a common thing um so yeah hire that person then as you progress you're going to want to more hire more subject matter experts so for example we ended up hiring someone from our 3PL to manage all of our 3PLs and that's quite a, a unique skill to have but he is tremendous and he's provided insane amounts of value and and removed a lot of headaches so generalists initially and then and then specialists later yeah, on yeah awesome so and, and the reason you would hire a generalist in the early days is because they can probably cover more bases. And then as each responsibility probably grows in, you know, what's needed to put into it, that's why you kind of expand out that way. Yeah, the tasks are shallow. So it's like a small Band-Aid fix here is enough to get you to the next level. Mm. But then as things come in, so for example, uh, 3PLs, if we need to check and order a 3PLs invoice, you know, we can get a generalist to look over it. We might lose a thousand, two thousand bucks in the early stages. Now, like our 3PL invoices are millions and millions of dollars a month. So we need to, you know, have a proper system in place for that. And a generalist isn't going to be f- figure that out. So it's all about leverage. Yeah. And you also mentioned um, uh, like finding someone who's the opposite of you or like people that are doing the opposite. And, it, and I think, d- does that come back to what you were saying before about, what's going to be your greatest ROI? Because obviously um, building a skill set and getting knowledge in a certain area takes time and you may not have that time. So it's better to kind of go out and find someone that's potentially the opposite because you don't have that time to put into it. I think we tend to do less of things we hate and that's not great for a business. So operation, like we, Udi was sold out for the first two years pretty much because I just didn't understand nor wanted to learn how to do demand planning. It was way too complicated and, and boring. And same with freight management and those kind of things. So it was only until we got an amazing COO that really understood those kind of things that is my complete opposite um, that, yeah, we really um, started started nailing that. So, you know, if you are a freak of nature that absolutely loves learning everything, um, then, then it comes down to time management and eventually, you know, you're – you're going to hire people that are just way better at things than you. Um, not to say that you couldn't be better than them, but they've spent more time and they're going to spend more time on it. So therefore you should, you know, relinquish some control and delegate to them. And if they're really good at it, they're probably going to love it too. Exactly. Yeah. And they'll grow. And, and you know, if they don't grow, then your the old company will outgrow them. And then you need to, you know, both decide that it's not, not the, the right role for them anymore. Um, but, you know, hopefully you find a way to for them to grow within the company and they can continue to progress with you. Guys, if you're loving this episode, make sure to take a screenshot, give us a tag or even take a photo if you're watching it. Give us a tag, help spread the love. It helps us out dramatically. But I just wanted to take a little bit of your time to say thank you to our major sponsors, BizCover. Uh, they are powering the podcast currently. They are the reason we get to travel and have all the amazing guests on 
but they're also a really amazing company. They're a business insurer that are insuring Australians all over the country uh, and making sure that if something does go wrong in their business, uh, it's not painful and it's not deadly. Uh, if you're an e-commerce business, uh, having insurance is really, really important because anything that goes wrong with your product and you are liable uh, and with the way the economy is currently um, and manufacturing and shipping and all of these things and potentially stock going missing, just having your business covered uh, could save you a lot of pain. Uh, so if you're interested in getting a quote, uh, it's super easy. It only takes, you know, you can get insured in under 10 minutes and there's no paperwork involved. Uh, the, their link is in the show notes. Go check it out and get yourself a better deal. And from a marketing perspective, like what's changing you know, uh, how is the landscape changing at the moment and, and how do you think about it now? You know, obviously, as I said previously, you, you, you are mastering your craft at the moment and, and obviously getting better at growing these products and brands. Um, how are you thinking about the marketing and what's changing? Yeah, I think now particular is a little bit dicey um, with a looming recession and, and spending dropping and the credit bubble. And I think I am treading carefully around you know, how much we spend in, in product development and taking risks and, and those kind of things. So I think that that's a natural contraction throughout the economy at the moment. But aside from that, like marketing specifically, I think uh, the, the privacy laws, I think everyone's kind of aware of now and how we didn't realize that the platform itself, Apple had so much power to, to kind of disrupt everything. I think we're going to see more and more of that, that, that you know, the, their failure to kind of move away from cookies as a tracking system is, is kind of terrifying. Um, so I think if those privacy laws keep kind of getting pushed that way, we're going to see more and more uh, negative effects. I'm hoping the Apple network and, and those kind of things provide new networks where we can start marketing efficiently again. Um, but aside from that, I think AI is, is going to be a huge game changer for, for everyone. I think, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of AI, probably over web three, to be completely honest, some of the early stage tools, you know, they're only 90% complete. I, I think, but they are just going to be an absolute game changer. Things like copy AI, um, you know, even looking at like image creation for, for e-commerce. I think it's a big one. I think email optimization, things like that, that are going to be quite easy to, you know, beat a human soon, which is exciting because where, 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 does, that, where does that leave the point of difference? It, the point of difference then becomes the brand positioning, the the way that we use the tool, our ability to use that tool, but then also the product where there is actually IP laws that you can kind of protect. Um, so I think that again brings us back to product and that's what I'm also trying to look at for how like Trend Rocket can get these large data sets and look at um, product optimization, trend timing, market opportunities for certain trends and um use AI to, to help help with that as well. I think that that would be cool. That's a really interesting point um, and I'm, I'm interested in it and I want to kind of pull on the string a little bit. Um, you mentioned that the like basically the way you differentiate is going to be in your positioning and more just overall in the creative side because like from and, – and it makes sense to me now with what you're saying is like AI is just going to maximize output, you know, in a lot of different spaces but what – where you're really going to be able to differentiate is say in the creative. So as an example, 
um, uh, you know, uh, Copy AI or Jasper AI or, or one of these things who write copy for you, like, yeah, they will write the copy for you and they will, you know, you might be able to write the copy in a tenth of the time, but the creative element to it is still going to be the thing that gets you competitive advantage. Yeah, the inputs, the prompts to those those yeah, platforms yeah, yeah. is where the value is going to lie. And I think those prompts will get complicated over time. Um, but then once they get plugged into the actual feedback mechanism where the the response so let's say let's say you develop a tool and I invested in someone that was was going to do this and there was a few complications of why they decided to end up pivoting but let's say you create a Facebook ad and the it, it runs uh, on Facebook and then you get the results for it and then it optimizes the ad so it changes the opening frame changes the first text and then runs it again it's when you get that closed loop of you know the feedback and then the results and then the alteration is going to be whether creativity there is no need for creativity um as a whole so then i think the challenges will probably more come down to the creativity around distribution and ability to manage operations and just general business practice so maybe marketing gets commoditized in in many many ways um and i think that that isn't necessarily a bad thing um, because I think it, I think it will bring, uh, it will make people spend more. It'll, it'll make more successful businesses, more innovation will come out of product, like living uh, product prices will drop as well. So um, standard of living will become better. So, um, but again, you know, these are, these are things that are like very, very complicated subjects when, innovation happens we generally overestimate the short-term effect and then underestimate the long-term effect and i think you know ai has been on like 40 years ago like microsoft and all of these people were like investing in in ai and, and stuff like that there's there's all these documents and all in the paper they're talking about ai all the time uh, and saying that it's just around around the corner but it just looking at the recent tools in the past six months it, it is it does feel like it's kind of just about to um add a, add a bit of a tipping point now which is exciting it's really interesting so i'd love to get a uh, before we move on i'd love to kind of get a, an idea of how you're thinking about say that big macro picture like you mentioned that obviously you're you're a bigger fan of ai than web3 um but one thing I picked up on there was like you, you mentioned that marketing may be commoditized, whereas you probably, if you think about, say, what was the trend, you know, over the last 10 years or, you know, let's say prior, you know, from two years ago, you know, backward, it was, it would have been very marketing centric with social media coming onto the platform. And and do you see it going away from that? Is that like, how, how you, first of all, do you think about that? Like, yeah. I'm sure you do, but. No, I, I don't. I don't really think of it i haven't thought long and hard about this um because i think you know a lot of these things are uh like almost a, a waste of you can of get energy. caught up in it you can yeah, get yeah, caught yeah. up in yeah. it and it takes away that you know i i know that there is going to be something that disrupts my way of work and I need to be ready for that. But to be, you know, pioneers get arrows in their ass. Like I, I don't need to be the first one there. I'll just uh, just copy other successful people that kind of have made it work and I'll learn from them. And and, and I think that that's, that's appropriate for when you're not like Google and like and Microsoft. Like you can just be a smaller, every single dollar that you need, you have, you need to be very frugal in investing it and not taking stupid risks. Um, 
so yeah, I don't think about it too much because I think that even if I tried, I would, um, I would get it wrong. What I do, where the certainties that I kind of understand is that, that, that there will be optimization tools that can optimize creative better once we get that feedback loop. The other thing that I understand is the the true value is going to become the data sets. You know, things like Reddit, Facebook, they're going to be able to create the best models. So if I was going to kind of invest and build, I would be looking at where are those proprietary data sets that I can utilize and create my own tools. Um, and yeah, I'm looking into that at the moment. But aside from that, I, look, I don't really look at the macro. If, if we kind of think about it a little bit, it's people are worried about job loss that that's that's probably going to happen but there's going to be a lot of job creation and that job creation comes in areas that nobody could have predicted like nobody <laughs> yeah, could have predicted yeah. a podcast host is a, is a <laughs> yeah, job, yeah, yeah, job yeah. first i still don't understand it but <laughs> yeah exactly like can you imagine like 20 years ago people saying that we'd be doing this it just makes no sense <laughs> yeah, so yeah. i think that that um that and as well as understanding that prices will come down significantly even you know ai driving delivering e-commerce products what happens career costs is like 10 20 percent of the yieldies price to deliver customers their product imagine when that's just done by robots and there's no human that has to do it like prices come down delivery drivers they, they don't need a, a maybe a high, as, as a high paying job this is just a, a hypothetical but because they can afford um, cheaper products that are, that are kind of getting pushed out. So, yeah, I think that there's a lot of deflationary action there as well, which is exciting, but, you know, it's going to be disruptive and um, we just need to make sure that there are some levels of regulation, protection for people and, um, you know, and education around the product. Yeah, everything comes with new problems, right? Um, and I, I think, like, you definitely hit the nail on the head um, with with I mean a lot of those points, but I think the the thing that was interesting that I found with what you just said then was like uh, you can get caught up fo- you know following the macro, and I think it's a little bit of an insight into yourself. You're like, hey, operationally, like we'll be quick to move, and we will just we will we'll make that happen. And I think that's I mean it, for me it was a good insight into the way your mind thinks. Then is like I don't need to understand what's going to happen in five years time as long as when it happens. I we are operationally sound to really act be active on it. Uh, yeah. I think I think it's the type of person you are and my track record does not say that I can completely predict where human nature and consumerism is going. I'm more of like a execution person. I I'm a creative person, there's no doubt about that, but like I'm not I'm not nowhere near like Steve Jobs or Chamath like, that could predict Bitcoin and Facebook before everyone was even talking about it. So, yeah, I think you need to understand who you are and and the the abilities that you have and and where you're looking. Like, what time frames are you looking? And then just work towards that. There's there's money to be made and and it's fun for depending on on where where you you know your interest lies you know yeah yeah 100 percent. and i think you don't uh, that's a really good point because you don't need to be those people and i think like fundamentally that can be a flaw that we all have is that you know there's not gonna like you know there's one elon every 30 years or 20 years like you don't need to be him to, to have any type of success it's just like more importantly you probably just need to be yourself elon's a great example because elon 
you know, said that the two areas that he, like in school, just out of, no, just out of school, he was doing PayPal and the two areas that he wanted to invest in were like electric cars and space. And I'm just like, what? I was not like that. I was not thinking about space when I was like flipping Instagrams and stuff like that. So it really is a type of person that can see that. And I I think it is good to understand why those people think like that. And I think it is all around, well, everyone's going to be different, but, you know, Elon was really into sci-fi and reading those kind of novels and that made him dare to dream. But looking at a lot of other people that study history and see like the long-term effects of certain inventions and therefore how they predict that, I think I think it's worth understanding where their mental models and their information diet that allows them to cre- predict really big trends. I think that is important. Mm, definitely, 100%. So obviously – like you know you when you start a business you go from a you're in a startup and you've really got to get your product off the ground you've got to fulfill a need and create demand around it um, but eventually you get to a point where it, it becomes a different game um, and you've been able to do that and you still are on that journey um, but what do you think people don't know about scaling a, bris- a business that stops them in the process yeah first of all anyone listening that's scaling a business and you feel like your business is chaos, every single startup is chaos. Like it, it is, you know, the more I've read about it, the more founders I've talked to, if if you don't think it's chaos, you're not doing something right, you're not work, you know, you're not trying to grow hard enough, um, or you're just naive and you're not looking at the the truth of the picture. So yeah, it's it is chaos and it happens in stages. You need to one of the main things the benefits that I had is just talking to people that are just above that stage for me and just constantly trying to find them and making sure that they really understand. I was lucky to have uh, people that were far, far above me. So they kind of were with me through that entire journey, but yeah, just constantly um, getting insights around what your objectives are, putting in the right people first, then process second, um, and just repeating, finding a flywheel, not getting too distracted, uh, you know, our flywheels release great products, launch them on Facebook, optimize that and, and grow it from there. So can you explain what a flywheel is? So just for people that are yeah, listening. A flywheel is from Good to Great, a, a book by Jim Collins. And it is a really, really good concept. In the book, he talks about how good companies become um, great on the stock market and compares them to similar niche products uh, in similar industries that actually went really, really bad. And, and and one of the main reasons was what what is they they understand their flywheel so the thing that they can just repeatedly do uh, that makes the flywheel spin a flywheel is a big heavy wheel and it's a process where they you know small pushes initially and then as it gains momentum it just grows and grows and spins faster and faster amazon has a really good flywheel where they bring in more product which allows them to have cheaper prices, which then attracts more customers, which allows them to have more product and that cheaper prices. And that's a flywheel. That's all they needed to do. Um, our flywheel is more around marketing. Um, but if you can create a flywheel, and this is what, what a lot of the social networks and stuff had, um, you can create viral growth and it can it can be a pretty powerful thing if it's a self-sustaining flywheel. Yeah, I, I recommend that book wholeheartedly it's amazing um and and i think the thing that the 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 great uh, the great um the great thing about that concept is is that the idea of like that 
really what you need to do is remove friction from the process. So like, you know, one one action should lead to another and there should be no friction. And I think that was a big thing for me is like understanding where that, being able to identify that friction and then remove it so that like like with Amazons, it's like they just have to one action at a time and eventually that builds momentum. But I thought, you know, flywheel is a, an interesting one that some people may not have heard. Um, so you mentioned people and process. Um, uh, can you elaborate on because uh, I feel like finding great people requires a lot of internal reflection as well. Like, you know, um, if you don't un- – I feel like it takes a lot of internal work on yourself to understand what a good person is to bring into the company and what you're looking for and what you value. You know, like I'm sure your culture is very different to, say, another company's culture and understanding that dynamic. Can you explain a little bit about that and, and maybe some of your learnings there? Yeah, I think I've done – everything wrong in this regard and I don't, I don't know if it's just because I have a I used to not have a bullshit radar I, I probably it was also just so like I don't know I, I'm such an action orientated person where I would just go like yeah do this do this hire this person like one application I just hire like hired my assistant just after a 10 minute phone call um which worked out she's she's amazing so <laughs> yeah. but you, you know I think um I think my kind of I'm I'm not saying culture is not important, but culture is a very easy thing to maintain when you've got four employees, which I think a lot of people listening might be approaching that mark. Yeah. Um, and over time, it's a you you as a founder are really going to set that culture going forward. When it starts to get as a larger group, it can get a little bit difficult. But I wouldn't not hire an amazing applicant in the very early stages that needs that has done exactly what I need them to do already. Um, because that's one of the best ways to, to hire, you, you know, when you're doing renovations, you're not going to hire the kid down the block that has amazing potential. You're going to hire someone that's already done a renovation in the exact same way. Right. So employees are very similar in that regard. So, but yeah, for culture, it's over time that you kind of, that will get defined eventually is is my opinion there's lots lots been written on it but yeah aside from that i think you know i've i've made a lot of a lot of bad hires and most of them have come through not being very clear on what is required for the role and what type of person that that is required to complete the role this isn't you know cultural things like do i want to have a beer with the person it's it's more around like can they execute on this six and 12 month plan. And and that needs to be quite clear. And that can be really hard initially because you don't even know what you're trying to do. Yeah. It's, you're, you're making this shit up as you go along. I've got a problem. Can you, you know, like yeah. 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 So um, that's why I'm saying hiring, hiring generalists and, and, and there is always one non-negotiable with a startup. The person needs to be so damn hardworking and hungry. Like if you get that and they're a generalist, uh, like I, I think that that's the best. And then over time, you know, getting, um, getting someone that understands, you know, recruiting and HR. And again, I talked about, you know, knowing someone above you, maybe it's in the same industry um, that can teach you around their hiring mistakes and what even title, what salary that, does that person need? What role do they, you should get them to show your org chart. chart. Like if you can get people doing that for you um, that are stages above you, you're going to make way less mistakes. So just reach out to people on LinkedIn. They don't need to be competitors, but they need to be in the same industry and they'll give you a lot of insights. Yeah, it's so true. And I think org chart planning is like a, 
like a, it's an art and it's definitely something that is really helpful with, with a lot of that as well. Um, I'm keen to talk about Davy Group and I'd love to, there's kind of, I guess, two major questions with this. Um, so I won't throw too much at you at this at once, but what was the initiation, you know, um, for you to, to start Davy Group and like, like why did you, you kind of take that step? Um, and then secondly, you're obviously in it, like I, I look at the business and, and go, you know, you're really trying to master a process and adapt a process of basically growing really successful e-commerce products, building brands around them and, and then, you know, um, building teams around that to manage them. Um, and I just love to dive into, obviously we've touched on a few things, but you know, more of a, um, how you're kind of looking at that process currently and, and how it's changed over time. Yeah. I, I'd be wrong to kind of fantasize and, and say it's a, a master plan. A lot, typically, uh, businesses that kind of do our turnover and profits, they generally have more shareholders and complications. The truth is, you know, I am the, I am the only shareholder and it just made sense more from a tax perspective and from a um, ability to, to share resources or, or capital um, to be under one corporate structure. It also gave us the, the opportunity to maybe sell the group or IPO the group in the future. Um, so, yeah, that's why I put it all under under one roof um again they operate in silos uh, as much as possible because uh, nothing destroys uh focus than trying to synergize businesses it's just crazy warren buffett doesn't do it and i've learned the hard way that 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 doesn't work as well um so yeah it's where i'm looking more I'm, i look less around e-commerce now like i think e-commerce is inherently flawed i think you need um you need retail as a as a cha- uh, as a channel. Um, I think he's barking in his sleep. Um, uh, yeah, so I think you need retail as a channel, and I think uh, you need to look more like at look at these luxury brands, look at Yeti, look, strive to be more like that than rather than some gimmicky e-commerce brand. I think that that's where the future lies. Is that what you kind of call like, is this omni-channel? And, and yeah. Looking at it like I would say it's just general brands, brands like general yeah, okay. retail. I, I think um, we pigeon ourselves in the, the term of e-com and, uh, and my response, the reason why I'm not in retail and wholesale is because there's always the grass is greener, the other side kind of people that are in these legacy uh, chains and they're saying that this is a terrible business model. You're going to have to give up so much margin and and deal with these massive orders. And I'm just like, it would have, because there was mean reversion with e-commerce, it went from you know COVID accelerant and then kind of dropped back down. And then all of that trade went back into retail. And the brands that were in, you know, these Costco's and Walmart's and stuff like that, they absolutely made a killing. So I regret not doing that, and I think um, I think the model is there. E-commerce, the model is quite obvious that they're both channels and are needed to create an absolute enormous brand. Um, and I think Jim Shark is the only outlier for that currently. Um, but I think that they will change as well. I can see they're opening a couple of stores um, now. So yeah, I'm excited to create brands and and software because of the the LTV and retention and um, yeah, our ability to create value within the group using creating our own software as well is, I think, really important. And there's a few things there that you mentioned right at the end. It's, um, you know, it's definitely interesting what you're saying and even some of the conversations I'm having on the podcast but also off, it, it does sound like obviously 
COVID was an accelerant one way, but, you know, again, just like, uh, you know, you always have to be able to pivot and, and adapt. But um, you mentioned like LTV retention, um, and I know that fundamentally really like looking at those things and being able to manage those things is really, really important to building any brand and, and really understanding any business. Um, and when I said, you know, when I was kind of talking before about you really trying to master something, um, I, you know, um, I, I, I think about it like in that perspective is like, you know, you, you would have such a great input of data, I find, you know, that, that are coming in from these brands. And that's kind of what you were talking about before where, at, at the beginning where you get to really share a lot of that information. Is that the information you're sharing is like, you know, okay, we tried this, you know, maybe a particular strategy with, with one brand um, and, and it's kind of coming across or is it not that, am yeah. I complicating it too much? No, nah, I think, um, I think there's, I think there's lots of lessons that, that come come across. Again, the leaner the e-commerce brand, the less risk we can take. So, for example, we might test something in, um, you know, we might test uh, an advertorial format of sorts for, through Udi and then when it works, we send it to all of our brands and say, use this. It gets a bit different when the brands aren't, you know, differentiated products like outdoor play, they're different models. So you can't really share those learnings, but yeah, it is basically like this worked, this didn't work is, is the main learnings that we can send across. We don't share data, um, in, in, in that way. Like we're not sending, e we're not sending email, the pub naps list or the emails. It doesn't, that's not how it works. So yeah, uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Awesome, mate. So the last thing that we talk about uh, is we call it quick fire. It's not really quick fire. It's more just like a set of questions that we ask everybody. Um, so the first question is, what's one piece of advice for your younger self? I think you just enjoy the journey. You know, it's you always feel like you're not good enough and it's not, you know, it's fun and it's going to be better next week or better next year when you, you know, hit this milestone, hit this milestone. But the truth is, like, you know, looking back, they're such fun years. So just enjoy the journey. I think it's the main thing. What, just on that, like what's, what's the process been for you individually, you know, like growing and being able to do that? Because great advice, but it's, it's, it's a lot easier yeah. said than done, right? Like, yeah, it's about um, remove, reducing the amount of attachment and, and desire that you have in achieving both materialistic and non-materialistic things like goals. Um Reducing them, you know, having one clear one, but understanding that, you know, if you hit it or not hit it, it's not going to change the the current, the present. Um, just staying present is, is really important. So, you know, I'm not a master at this. I'm still super hungry and help work an unhealthy amount. So, um, you know, I, I do understand that it's something that I need to work on, but I think most people do. Yeah, amazing. So what advice would you give to someone who's just starting a business? I think focus on your product. If you uh, oh, I, actually, I would say get your first win because once you get your first win, it's so addictive. Um, it's just so much fun. Focus on the positive. You know, if if I focused on the six failures that I had before I got a couple of positives, I would I would have quit. So it's just about getting that first positive feedback loop is just so important. So just focus on that and yeah, keep going. Love it. All right, so what's the most important trait that a founder must have for success and why? 
I'll give you two. Intellectual curiosity is the the main one, but also grit and perseverance, resilience. If if you don't give up and you keep learning, it's only a matter of time until you get successful. This just it's it just yeah it takes a bit of time. Yeah, I I often think like business is like how many times can you fall over and just get back up and keep running because a lot of people don't make it past the first couple. So it's great advice, mate. I want to say a massive thank. Oh, I got the hiccups. Massive thank you for your time. Um. I know you're obviously really busy and I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I get to cap off a year with an amazing conversation with, you know, someone who is, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, really young and, and really passionate and really driving and, and still has so much success in front of them, but also has achieved a lot as well. So I, I do really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks for having me, mate. It's been where great. can, if someone isn't following you, they, they probably most likely are, but where can they find you? YouTube or Twitter, either or just Davey Fogarty. Beautiful. Mardo, thanks for putting this together. And to our loyal listeners, um, just a massive thank you. It's been a huge year for us. And without your support, we don't get to have amazing conversations with people like Davey. Um, So, yeah, a massive thank you. And uh, we'll see you next year.